0: This is Save the Nation on ADHTV, TV, and I'm David Flint. And my guest today is a guest we've had before. is a very distinguished person, and that is Gregory Copley, who's the president of the International Strategic Studies Association, based in Washington DC, and is an advisor to all sorts of extraordinary people. And I think you'll find today in the program today, when we come to a particular item, he puts a an interpretation of the a, of a major development in international affairs over the last many years, and he's put it in a different context. He's given an explanation, which I never thought of, which I think is absolutely superb. But if I may begin, Gregory, we've just uh, seen the coronation of a new king, and uh, I'm wondering what the reaction is around the world to that, and uh, how you see this affecting the Australian Constitution?
1: Well, certainly King Charles has begun his reign uh, by giving a new image to the Crown and certainly uh, given more impetus to the revival and strengthening of the British and Commonwealth Crown in a way which I think many people had not expected. He has attempted to modernise the view of the crown obviously uh, slimming down the, uh, the, the role of the crown in many respects uh, to make it more clear more relevant and more appealing to the next generation because after all uh, regardless of the fact that he's been waiting for this appointment for over seven decades uh, the reality is that he is the next generation of the crown uh, and will prepare the, the world uh, for what comes next He's done that very well. I think he did a lot of it instinctively. Certainly, has thought about the role of the monarchy in modern governance, but uh, I think it needed more planning to embrace the message of the role of constitutional monarchy in stable governance and the creation of wealth and pride and progress in societies. Uh, He managed to capture a lot of that intuitively within the United Kingdom, of course, uh, in England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Uh, He did less well in bringing this message to the Commonwealth and particularly the key dominions of Canada, Australia and New Zealand, where they have respectively legislated that the crown uh, is the crown of Canada, Australia, New Zealand uh, separately uh, and the case needs to be brought freshly home to the, to the Commonwealth uh, audiences so that they can understand why this is so critical to their future stability, so that they don't move from the long-term values, which monarchies uh, are there to, to perpetuate and move to the short-term transactionalism of political governance which is normally the feature of republics around the world. Uh, Now, republics don't have to be focused on short-termism, but generally, if you've got a fairly short electoral cycle in most modern elected democracies, you have politicians tending to make deals with the electorate. That's the, the new and visible and cheap form, if you like, of the social contract. It's the way in which politicians say if uh, I'll make your life better, I'll give you more material things if you vote for me. But what we've found is that this is a never ending cycle because materialism is not what satisfies the identity and purpose and sense of dignity, nobility and the like of individuals uh, within a a, a nation state or a society. Uh, And monarchies tend to to give that sense of nobility and purpose and ethical values, a a sense of mysticism, which uh, can include uh, a a degree of religious belief, often does, and and, and almost invariably includes some kind of long-term belief system. Uh, And this is really what is the underlying craving of most societies to have purpose, to have dignity, to feel that their worth can be tangible, can be passed on down the generations, that they are something special. And that's what uh, King Charles has attempted to do with his revitalization of the monarchy. It was a very impressive performance because the, the coronation, the uh, enthronement, the anointing uh, and, uh, and the crowning of a of new king is, always something which has uh, an appeal to mysticism and that that's the fundamental role of the crown to elevate it above being something uh, mortal uh, which of course the individual who sits on the on the throne is mortal but the the ethereal nature of of the crown as representing values is what's c- critical and in the case of australia and canada uh, i'd proposed Uh, some years ago, and New Zealand for that matter, in a book called Australia 2050, that Australia creates an Australian crown, because let's face it, our crown is something which is less than tangible uh, because the king doesn't live in Australia. He's represented through a governor general as he is in Canada and New Zealand. Uh, And to make the, the crown Australian, we need to Australianize it, and that means having a separate crown for for the for the three major dominions. Um, this is not something which would be difficult to do, and something which could entail a degree of brief ceremony by the king or the queen uh, as they enter their reigns in in these in their respective countries of um, uh, of of reign. Uh, it would start to bring the Crown back into perspective for, in our case, Australians. Um, and it doesn't, of course, diminish the role, the if you like, the, the constitutional role of the Governor-General in safeguarding the people against elected politicians to ensure that elected politicians stay within the guidelines of the Constitution and deliver what they're supposed to deliver to the electorate.
0: Just on that, uh, Greg, are you suggesting that there should be a ceremony in each of the uh, realms? I think and so. That, for example, it I should can... be like a con- like the continental constitutional monarchies, with perhaps a crown sitting on a table, rather than a, a, a local coronation.
1: Well, that's true. But it, it, but if the if the king or the sovereign were to visit. Australia and Canada and New Zealand uh, and, if you like, um, preside over the, the the presentation of that crown uh, at a ceremony at Government House, that would at least, if you like, confer a, a formality of the transition. Now, it's clear that the the governments of the, the Three Dominions and many other Commonwealth States which recognise the British sovereign as head of state, uh, that The transition from Queen Elizabeth II to King Charles III was quite clear. It was legally binding and and effective immediately. And, of course, in the case of Australia, we saw the Prime Minister and Governor-General attending the the, uh, uh, coronation in Westminster Abbey. But we didn't see the Canadian Prime Minister attending. Yes, he spoke to the King shortly afterwards, but he wasn't there in person. And this was a significant... Mm, deterioration of the normal Canadian tradition of showing full uh, commitment to the to the sovereign of Canada. Yes, there were Mounties, Canadian mounted police, in the procession to and from uh, the uh, the Abbey, but uh, we we needed something a little more than that. And I think King Charles is going to have to work at uh, his building his relationship with. The, the the Commonwealth and the Three Dominions particularly, and I'm sure he will, because he is extremely devoted to those dominions. Uh, the Crown has always been very, very strong in Canada, where it's had particular relations, not just with the modern Canadian people, but with the traditional uh, peoples of Canada, uh, where where, where uh, as early as King George III, there were very, very distinct treaties signed with the First Nations of Canada. And those First Nations take those treaties extremely seriously, far more seriously than uh, the Prime Minister of Canada uh, would would uh, perhaps appreciate. So uh, th- so bringing these historical realities and continuities to life, I think will be very important to the countries themselves as well as to, to the Crown. And we have to bear in mind that uh, we are seeing now a war between uh, ideologies. We're seeing democracy itself being transformed and being interpreted as only being a republican uh, form uh, of um, uh, of social contract, which is, of course, not the case. What we what we have found is that uh, those de- democracies which are constitutional monarchies tend to be, on average, better performing. Uh, they're, they're wealthier per capita than than most republics uh, they uh, they also are happier and more stable they don't have the same degree of social division which we see uh, in for example the United States and the United States has been very fortunate for uh, more than 200 of its uh, 230 or 40 years of, of independence uh, that it hasn't it has been very stable and that's because, it treated its constitution as though it was uh, a a de facto crown. So I I look at the United States as being a a crowned republic. They venerated the constitution in the same way that the British and many European countries venerate their crowns. Um, uh, But the, the difference was that the Americans ceased to respect the constitution to a large degree. We've seen a huge breakdown in respect for the constitution and constitutional law. Uh, And as a result, we've seen the society uh, polarize more than would otherwise be the case. There's always going to be a natural polarization between rural and urban communities. But in the United States, it's arguably got out of hand because uh, there is nothing which binds them, and and in one at one stage it was the constitution and the concept of loyalty to the constitution, like the crown, that kept Americans very very committed to each other.
0: Yes, I think that's very true. Uh, one of the we we've now had an opinion poll. The first one after the coronation, it's by essential essential for a number of years ever since they accepted a private commission from the Republican movement changed their question and we told them their question mm. was wrong. It was are you in favour of Australia becoming a republic with an Australian as head of state? And we said, Well, there is a dispute. We we say that the uh, the governor general is the Australian head of state. And this is a this was in the referendum and you are you are really biasing the question. And in any event, their question is no longer biased. But what they did was they only allowed yes and no. They didn't allow the undecided. And it's come to 54 to 46 in favor of Republic. But when you go into it, they do publish which are the strong yeses and the weak yeses. The weak yeses are very likely to change their mind or they will change their mind. And Once you look at the hard yeses, the only hard yeses in favor of a republic is 29, 29%. That's too Mm. low to come even close to winning a referendum. I I do think that uh, if they go down in the voice or it doesn't pass very well, I think they will go down in the voice, but if they don't do very well in the voice, they will not be inclined, even if there is a second term. To go ahead with uh, with uh, a re- referendum on the republic, I don't think we'll see that. I think it's more likely that we will see the crown going to uh, William and then to George as George the Seventh.
1: I think I think you're right. Um, the, um, the 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 answer, the real answer in the in the referendum, as it was in 1999, is yes, but and that's based on the, on again, on the false premise that Australia uh, should have an, an Australian head of state, which, as you say, it already does have with the Governor-General. I think it's unfortunate that Australia missed the opportunity at Federation in 1901 to have its own separate uh, monarchy, which could have been related, a cadet branch, if you like, of the uh, of the uh, British royal family, uh, because there was definitely the the familial relationship at that point between australia and and the United Kingdom, and still is to that for that matter uh, but the the reality is that Australia could have indisputably have its own have had its own crown its own monarch uh, without any ambiguity of the a distant relationship between the mystical crown of Australia based in London and the actual crown of Australia based in Canberra. Uh, but the, the, that, that opportunity is passed. Uh, the other thing is that the Australians do not want to see a government which has no accountability to the constitution. And the one great gift which Prime Minister Gough Whitlam gave to Australians was the fact that he refused to abide by the constitution and refused to resign when he didn't meet the constitutional requirement for the passage of his finance bills and it then fell to the governor general a former cabinet member in Gough Whitlam's government to call the prime minister to government house and tell him that his government had been dissolved and that new elections had been called. Now, yes, there was a lot of controversy about that and continues to be, including a lot of disinformation and uh, outright lies being stated about that. But what was clear was that when the prime minister refused to abide by the constitution and was prepared to act literally unlawfully as head of government, in other words the the prime minister had decided to stage a coup d'etat against the people of australia it was then that the crown was able to step in and have the the government abide by the constitution so uh, we have to keep reminding australians that politicians are going to think that they are above the law and unless a non-politician is there to guarantee that fealty to the constitution and fealty to the public, then you have, unless you do that, then you've lost the social contract between the governed and the governors. And it's only by virtue of a stable and happy a social contract that you can get progress, that you can get peaceful transfers of power down the generations. And every country is different. Australia is different from New Zealand. Uh, uh, I've just uh, witnessed uh, once again the uh, elections or referendum in Uzbekistan, Uh, witnessing it to uh, a change in the constitution it was done immensely peacefully in a way which would not occur in any western european or australian uh, or north american uh, society but it was done with complete acquiescence of the population and participation they understood the importance of a social contract that the president would be allowed to do certain things, but he must provide in return certain guarantees and safeguards for his population. Uh, and that's what we, what we should be entertaining, not this petty bargaining of uh, transactions uh, of a material nature, which is what we have descended to. Uh, look, what kept Labor uh, from government until this present term was the fact that they uh, they, basically said that they were going to increase the cost of electricity for Australian taxpayers and Australian homeowners. And this was uh, an increase to, uh, to an untenable degree. And so the, the vote switched from a certain Labour victory to a Liberal National Party victory. That was quite critical and that tells you that the public want some accountability. They want to have uh, a fairness in their dealings. And you're not going to get that in any country where the head of state is also the head of government. And the problems you have in the United States today and where the government of the United States has gone, if you like, off the rails is because there's a, a percentage of the population which doesn't respect the constitution and doesn't want the Checks and balances of society between uh, the parliamentary branch, the executive branch, and the Supreme Court uh, to continue to uh, to safeguard the the uh, rights of the population. And in Australia, we've been extremely fortunate in having uh, the Crown there, literally uh, as an abstract guardian. And we've seen where that goes off the rails. We've we've seen. During the COVID crisis, for example, even in the states where the governors of the states are supposedly the guardians of the state constitutions. And yet there were numerous instances where they failed to respect their state constitutions and the federal government refused to uh, undertake its duties under the federal constitution. So constitutions matter. The ability to have guardians. For that constitution are critical and in the case of most of the world and Australia in particular, that guardian is the crown.
0: I think you're absolutely right. You referred to Gough Whitlam and the dismissal of Gough Whitlam because he would not do what the constitution required. He could not say that he didn't know that this was what the constitution required. He was a QC But also he had his uh, shadow attorney general when he was leader of the opposition. He had Lionel Murphy table in the House, in the Senate rather, a list of 169 occasions when Labour had tried to do what the Liberal Party did to him, that is block supply. And uh, Whitlam stated at the time of that tabling And he was trying to do it again. He was trying to get the DLP, the the Swing Labour Party, to join with them, that if they blocked supply, the constitutional consequence was that the Prime Minister must go to the people or must advise the Governor-General that he was resigning and advise the Governor-General to call somebody else to form a government. Mr. Whitlam knew exactly what he had to do. He did it in 1973 when it first happened. He wasn't going to do it in 1975. He decided because what was happening was he knew that he would probably lose the election. And uh, he had to be dismissed, and uh, the Governor-General did the right thing. What what I would like to yes. go on to now, if I may, is your special analysis, which I read with enormous interest. You you say or was about how the overthrow of Richard Nixon led to the present... American confrontation in the world. And you trace all of the problems, the the international problems and disputes, the big ones, back to the removal of uh, Richard Nixon from the presidency. And I found that so fascinating. You said that since then, the US has moved along a strategic trajectory largely determined by its adversaries, which is fascinating because uh, imperial powers are not expected to have their 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 strategic uh, activities trajectories determined by their adversaries to the extent that the America has Britain did during the uh, the long period of uh, British dominance in the nineteenth century, and uh, and uh, I don't think the the Nazis did until about 1943. They just determined what they yeah. were going to do, and they weren't they weren't affected by what their potential enemies did. And uh, I find that extraordinary. And I find it so interesting what you had to say.
1: Could you explain that? It's clear that that sovereignty is determined by how much control you have over your own destiny. And what we're seeing today is that the United States is moving along a trajectory, not of its own making. And that began with Nixon's visit to China. Look, even before 1972, uh, his key advisors, and that's particularly General Haig and uh, Dr. Stefan Personi, my old colleague, as well as Dr. Henry Kissinger, his national security advisor, all recognized that this monolithic communism, which was supposedly uh, confronting the West during the Cold War, was not so monolithic, and that the Sino-Soviet rivalries Uh, had meant that there'd been many border conflicts between the uh, People's Republic of China and the USSR, uh, and that there was natural hostility between Mao Zedong and the Soviet leaders, particularly at that point with Brezhnev, although Mao had not been any too happy with Stalin before that. Uh, So the move was to try to break China, the People's Republic of China, away from the Soviet Union. Uh, thereby weakening this this global coalition uh, which had divided the world uh, against uh, well with the west against against the soviet uh, the communist bloc uh, the west had approached or the us had approached or tried to approach mao zedong before that time mao zedong was becoming increasingly weakened fortunately he died a few years later without suffering the consequences of his of his action, but he was so weak that, that, the, um, uh, that he was constantly at war with his opponents within the Communist Party of China. Uh, he had already overseen a civil war, which led to starvation and the like, uh, and the deaths of over 60, perhaps up to 100 million uh, Chinese people. Uh, so he was, uh, at this particular time, looking for alternatives. Clearly, uh, the Soviets were keen to replace him, with another uh, uh, Chinese Communist leader. Uh, This is why we saw the constant purges by Mao Zedong against people like his defense minister, Lin Biao, uh, who subsequently died trying to escape from the purge by Mao. Um, But uh, for some reason, in 1972, General Haig, in particular, found the route to reach Mao and make him receptive to an, uh, an overture. Uh, and that was a, a remarkable uh, and subtle achievement, which occurred only because uh, the United States had really strong ties with the Shah of Iran and his uh, foreign minister, Arisha Zahadi at that time, who uh, orchestrated a lot of this and and, uh, and the Shah had contacts with Mao uh, and with Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, the Prime Minister of Pakistan. and um, Bhutto's uh, Ambassador in Washington D.C., who I knew, uh, uh, Sultan uh, Khan, Ambassador Sultan Khan, managed to get these messages across, through to Beijing, through to Mao, who agreed to the meeting. And then we saw Kissinger go over and initiate the the process. It was a it was a long, carefully orchestrated build up. You saw the ping pong diplomacy and all that sort of stuff. But Nixon goes there, and of course the PRC wanted to get certain concessions from the United States. And the United States knew that it wasn't gonna break Beijing away from Moscow unless it offered something. And it did, and it offered to, if you like, get the PRC into the world trading environment. Uh, This meant making promises which uh, the United States really didn't wanna make, uh, and it avoided making them as much as possible regarding the future of, of the Republic of China on Taiwan, for example. Uh, but, But what happened was that Nixon came away from that diplomacy with his objective achieved. The PRC had firmly separated from the USSR, and that was the beginning of the end for the USSR, which was the senior partner in the communist bloc at that time. Now we would expect that this made Nixon popular at home, which it did. We also would have had to have expected that the Soviet Union would not take this lying down. And they didn't. Nixon was coming up for re-election and the Chinese communists knew that Nixon was gonna be held to account for some of the commitments he'd made to them during, the, during his second term. And the Soviets were anxious that Nixon should not get a second term and not be able to fulfill that and so that they would then have the opportunity to bring Beijing back into the into the field, if you like, bring them back into a closer alliance with Moscow. What we saw was that the Soviets who had an unparalleled penetration from the 1920s onward of the US political structure. The Americans kept, you know, harping at the British for having been penetrated by the likes of Kim Philby and Burgess and McLean and Blunt and the like as as Soviet spies. But the reality was that the bulk of the Soviet penetration was of the United States uh, intelligence, defense and, and other security services and the political parties. So basically, the Soviets utilized this capability to make the a catastrophe which became Watergate. Now, Nixon was well aware of what he was up against with the Soviets. He knew that literally everything that was being spread into the Washington National Security Committee, no matter how classified it was, was getting over to Moscow. He knew he couldn't trust the FBI to crack down in, in their counterintelligence role, to crack down on these leaks. And that's why the unit was formed in the White House called the Plumbers, Nobody has, you know, in America, I keep asking the question, why do you think they were called the plumbers? It was because plumbers are there to stop the leaks, and the leaks were going to the Soviet Union. So basically, uh, the, there was a cat and mouse game in Washington uh, of the plumbers trying to find where the leaks were coming from and shut them down, and the Soviets trying to, to thwart that endeavor by the White House, and they did of course, when uh, the uh, the plumbers were perhaps less than epped in their penetration of the Democratic Party headquarters at Watergate. And, the, and that scandal then was escalated by direct political action into a major scandal which threatened the impeachment of President Nixon and caused him to resign. He'd, remember, he just had just that, been...
0: Could, could I interrupt yeah. you just on that at that point? Was the Democrat mm. Party, the Democrat headquarters, were they involved in the leaks to the Soviet Union?
1: That we don't know. But we know that that the White House was concerned that the, the Democratic Party was itself, was itself completely penetrated, uh, and it may well have been, because we saw a whole lot of Democratic Party political operatives, including at that stage the very junior Hillary Clinton, Campaigning against Nixon in in part of these orchestrated campaigns uh, to uh, to to force Nixon onto the defensive, and once uh, the the existence of the plumbers was known and the conversations which Nixon recorded within the White House. Were about to be revealed or erased, as we saw that in the missing 18 minutes, or whatever it was, um, that 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 Nixon was very much on the defensive, uh, and we did see that the Soviets had penetrated the organs of of, the sh- of of power, the security organs. When we think that deep throat, the man who was divulging all of this information to the Washington Post through reporters Woodward and Bernstein was was a chap who was a senior FBI official, later deputy director of the FBI, and he kept his secret uh, until he died. But he was the man who basically was channeling all of this uh, Soviet-oriented intelligence to the Washington Post so that Nixon would be uh, forced on the defensive and forced to uh t- to resign they couldn't mount enough pressure before the elections uh, for him to uh to be forced uh, uh, into losing the election because he won that election with a landslide um, but he was forced after he won that election into uh into resigning i think today no president would allow himself to be forced to resign on the basis of an impeachment in the House of Representatives, uh, particularly if that impeachment would face difficulties in going to a criminal conviction in the in the Senate. Uh, Nixon, I think, could have weathered it. But these were days when politicians felt that they, if they were impeached, that they had lost the trust of their society and had an obligation then to resign on principle. Nobody resigns. In the united states or the united kingdom or the or in australia on principle anymore it's always can i get away with it can i defend myself uh and 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 so yeah. on but uh, nixon just when on, he was uh, just on uh, on the prc
0: the people's republic of china the communist government was it nixon or was it clinton president clinton who effectively saved the the communist regime from collapse. Nixon, uh, Clinton by bringing them into the World Trade Organization and not, not, not putting strict conditions on the observance of the terms of the World Trade Organization, which we see even in Australia today where they are committing outrageous breaches of international trade law against this country and we're going along meekly with it.
1: And and not just the World Trade Organization, but the International Civil Aviation Organization and the like, isolating uh, Taiwan and the Republic of China and the like. Well, look, what happened was that Nixon was quite clear to his advisors and, and, and allies that he was going to carefully manage, stage manage Beijing away from Moscow, not uh, bring it un- as an unfettered partner into the Global Trading Alliance. Uh, for the immediate years following his ab- his abdication, we saw Gerald Ford busy trying to restore trust between the United States public and their elected officials. And he did so very effectively, but he wasn't doing it with an eye to foreign policy. So the, the whole China situation was allowed to run its course with Beijing, uh, able to express itself, if you like, as a more favoured uh, entity than it had been uh, prior to 1972. But when Carter came in, he immediately did the opposite of what Nixon would have wanted or any conservative, I think, would have wanted. He brought the PRC into an elevated state. He gave it benefits, including the particular one, uh, which was to deny recognition to the Republic of China, in other words, Taiwan, and the Republic of China, bear in mind, was the legitimate successor government to the imperial government of China, uh, which uh, collapsed in 1911, 1912. The People's Republic of China never, and to this day, has not uh, assumed responsibility for the debts and obligations and treaties of imperial China. So basically, the People's Republic of China is not quote, China. It's not the legitimate successor to imperial China, even though today they finally acknowledge the history of, of the Chinese mainland people. But basically, by getting Taiwan reduced from recognition and Beijing being recognized as China, the United States started the process of getting the People's Republic of China never legitimate government of China, into the United Nations taking the Chinese seat in the United Nations. And because of the incredible role which Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, the nationalist Chinese, had had in defeating the Empire of Japan in World War II, that gave the Republic of China a permanent seat on the Security Council that automatically went over to the People's Republic of China. And we should bear in mind that it was not the the Red Army, the People's Liberation Army of the Communist Party of China, which had defeated the Japanese, because what the People's Liberation Army did during the war against Japan was to hold back and let the Kuomintang Nationalist Army fight and help defeat Japan. And then when the nationalists were weakened, the communists were able to sweep in and and seize the country in 1949. So basically what we saw once Carter came in was the People's Republic of China suddenly became a quasi-legitimate nation state and power on the world stage. And yes, then we saw the Clinton administration do all manner of things to strengthen that, getting the PRC into the World Trade Organization, Uh, And and as you say, they have abused that process ever since. And we see other countries such as Uzbekistan in in, uh, Central Asia, a very legitimate, open and transparent democracy, still fighting to get into the World Trade Organization. And the United States is not helping that country, even though the Central Asian states are natural allies of the West uh, in breaking up the monolithic Eurasian uh, power mass, which is now, once again, Russia and the People's Republic of China, because we've, in recent years, made sure that Russia had nowhere else to go but back into the arms of the PRC. So, yes, we saw uh, Carter, and then we saw Clinton massively enabling, funding, and empowering the Communist Party of China, regardless of the fact that these countries, that that the People's Republic of China and the various leaders after Mao Zedong uh, had all proclaimed the United States and the West as their principal adversary. And in the case of uh, uh, Xi Jinping, the enemy of of the People's Republic of China. And Xi Jinping actually said in 2018 that the PRC was now at war with the United States and would win that war by 2049 the hundredth anniversary of their seizure of, of mainland China so and Clinton what we saw- uh, Clinton also also
0: tolerated what was the handover of vast amounts of uh, intellectual property to the Communists uh, you don't suddenly become such a major power with IP intelligence as China has become without it being Mm. taken, uh, either by pressure on big business who thought that if they handed this over, they could enter the market, or just the theft. As to Carter, didn't he also simultaneously pull the rug under our major ally in the Middle East, the Shah of Iran, and allow our enemies to take over the Mm. Iranian government?
1: Yes, Jimmy Carter not a destroyed, d- deliberately destroyed the Shah of Iran, uh, and and we've lost Iran for the foreseeable future uh, as a Western ally. And it was a profoundly loyal ally of the West. He uh, we also he also essentially undermined and destroyed uh, the imperial government of Ethiopia, which was the critical guardian of the Red Sea. Uh, I mean, Carter's. Criminal idiocy uh, knows very few bounds, and uh, it's often been said that I, I like that criminal
0: uh, idiocy. That should be underlined. Criminal, the criminal uh, uh, idiocy uh, of Jimmy Carter. That that yes, should be remembered. I,
1: I, I think that he's being venerated now as he approaches his last, his remaining years or months. Uh, when um, he should not be venerated, uh, he's been made to look slightly more human by the passage of time and by the appearance of even more anti-American leaders in Washington uh, like Barack Obama but particularly uh, Joe Biden uh, and um, the damage being done is profound and, and right now for example uh, we're seeing um, profound relief being given to the people's republic of china by the actions of the biden administration the uh, the fact that that the biden administration encouraged this war to begin between russia and ukraine it was not just a, a a case of sudden u.s russian aggression against ukraine it was the threat to russia by the biden administration that it would make ukraine a member of nato and put NATO uh, combat capabilities right uh, within, you know, minutes of, of Moscow, strike capability within minutes of Moscow. That caused uh, the, the Russians to, uh, to, to take that drastic step uh, in February last year to invade uh, we- uh, eastern Ukraine. And that, in turn, led to the isolation of Russia which meant that it couldn't sell its, its oil and gas and its grain products on the world market. And they, they had to turn to supplying that energy and that food production to the People's Republic of China, which desperately needs it. Have to bear in mind that the People's Republic of China has you know 20% of the world's population and 7% of the world's water. So it is unable to meet its food requirements short of importing massive amounts of food from the United States in particular. When Russia had nowhere else to sell its grains and and foodstuffs uh, other than to, to the People's Republic of China, it took a huge burden off Beijing, which could then reduce its food dependency on the United States and countries like Brazil and Australia. So this gave Beijing a strong measure of renewed independence. Not only saved it money, it saved it from the reality that if it went to war over Taiwan and the United States cut off its food supplies, then the People's Republic of China would starve within weeks. Now, Beijing has some options, thanks to the Biden administration's actions on uh, isolating Russia, recreating a new Cold War, driving Russia to the one place it never wanted to be, into the arms of Beijing, this time with Beijing holding the whip hand, and Beijing threatening to take Russian territory in the Russian Far East. Not a happy marriage, but it's something which profoundly supports the uh, the Communist Party of China. Just on
0: on uh, this. Uh, d- I suppose you would agree that it's unlikely that Mr. Biden will uh, be re-elected as president. Would that be a correct interpretation of the likely events in America? And if, if, it, it, if uh, it would be, and if Donald uh, Trump yeah. were to become the president, what would you what would be the impact on world affairs? Do you think?
1: Well, there's a lot of ifs around. Um, yes, and um, as, yes. Harold Wilson, <laughs> as, as Harold Wilson reminds us, a week is a long time in politics. Um, at this stage, President Biden has said that he wished to uh, recontest the presidency in 2024. He didn't do that through a formal Democratic Party uh, release or meeting or public statement. He did it through a videotaped announcement which shows that he doesn't have the full support of the democratic party on that the democratic party is in a uh, in a difficult position it certainly does not want to see uh, a biden presidency with a a kamala harris vice presidency enduring because uh, president biden's health is not great Uh, and they and they the last thing that the democratic party wants is for kamala harris to succeed him uh, as president just through his passing or resignation. So they have to do something between now and 2024. There are a number of Democratic Party uh, uh, officials uh, and candidates who put their names forward to run for the presidency. And this is normally unheard of in in a situation, normally an incumbent president doesn't expect challenges from within his own party uh, when the chance for re-election comes up, but that will happen. Uh, The answer as to whether President Trump, former President Trump, would be uh, elected in his bid for the 2024 election uh, is moot. Um, What defeated him last time was the fact that people came out to vote against him and not for Joe Biden. The question is, will they come out again in, the, in sufficient numbers? The other question is, will there be uh, will sufficient numbers of independents support President Trump this time, as they did in the last two elections? Uh, and that's that's debatable. But if President Trump is returned to the White House in 2024, uh, it will be uh, a difficult situation domestically because. He will be very, very careful about how he treads in Washington at that particular time because he knows that the established bureaucracy can do many things to unseat him. Uh, There was a rumor going around that um, people in in the FBI told his campaign, well, we got Richard Nixon, we can get you. Well, that may be fallacious, but... The sentiment is, is certainly there, and most people in the Trump camp are, are wary that that could happen again. So the question is, what would President Trump do? Well, certainly he would uh, tighten the screws on cooperation with the PRC. He would strengthen relations with the Republic of China. Now, this is something that the, De- the Democratic Party leadership on Capitol Hill is already doing. Uh, there's bipartisan support for Taiwan, the Republic of China. There's growing support for Taiwan in even Australia. The Australian government is, uh, has solid intelligence, links, uh, and appreciations uh, with, with Taiwan at this stage. Uh, the question of uh, what the Pentagon does is another matter. The Pentagon is answerable to the commander-in-chief, which is at this stage President Biden, but there is great sentiment within the defense uh, or the de- Department that mon- less money has to be spent supporting Ukraine, which is not really winning any friends in Washington, and more money has to be spent in preparing to uh, to uh, stave off a threat from the People's Liberation Army of the People's Republic of China. The question really is uh, whether a few astute moves by President Trump could uh, undermine the PRC economy rapidly. In causing the, the final implosion of the PRC economy which is already very very weak is economically uh, entrapped at this stage uh, and let the, let the PRC collapse of its own weight or its own uh, lack of funds now the question is would that be enough to remove the Communist Party of China from power it may well be if there's sufficient urban unrest against the, uh, against the party or if the PLA turns against the party, uh, bearing in mind that this is a political army, the PLA is not like a national army as we have in Australia or the United States or Great Britain, this is an army which belongs to the party, just the same as the SS belonged to the Nazi party, for example. So, um, the question is, what happens in the PRC? One way or another, if the PRC runs out of money and runs out of microchips, then its ability to challenge the United States or Taiwan becomes reduced. Uh, This is a period of great instability for which the United States has to prepare, because even the the latest Australian uh, Defence Strategic Review uh, says that the Indo-Pacific is no longer a, uh, under the control of a, unipo- a unipolar uh, strategic environment. In other words, no longer under the complete, complete command of the United States, that there is a balance of power within the Indo-Pacific and that the, the People's Republic of China is that other competing power. Um, so so basically, if President Trump was to be reelected, he would face a, a much more difficult situation than the one uh, he was managing or, uh, in uh, 2019, for example. Um, and and we have to bear in mind that the the 2020 situation with the, the COVID crisis is what brought about his downfall, and that was a, a fairly well-managed operation, uh, that that COVID was used domestically in the United States as an anti-Trump measure, which is why there were so many Crazy decisions about uh, population control introduced at that time, as they were in Australia.
0: Well, thank you for all of that valuable assessment of the situation, particularly your assessment of the fundamental causes of the present rather disastrous situation. Uh, Just as a final matter to deal with, uh, as you probably know, the Quad meeting in Sydney has been called off by President uh, Biden, and uh, AUKUS seems to be still going along. What is your what is your assessment of those two arrangements, AUKUS and uh, Quad? What contribution
1: are they making in world affairs? Well, at the moment, uh, I, I think that neither the Quad nor AUKUS are taking full strategic advantage of their opportunities. Uh, The Quad was essentially mismanaged after uh, the Biden administration came into office because President Biden tried to use it as a tool to punish Russia, not to punish the PRC. And as a result, that really heightened the distrust which the government of India under Prime Minister Narendra Modi had of the United States. Uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi in, was it May 24th last year, the the day of the Quad meeting summit in Tokyo, uh, when Prime Minister Albanese on his first day in office went to Tokyo for that meeting. uh, And President Biden asked all of the Quad members India, Australia, Japan, and the US to sign a statement condemning the actions of Russia in Ukraine. And Prime Minister Modi said, that is not why we're here. This is not about Russia, it is about the containment of the PRC. And of course, that meant that there was no statement of, of, uh, from Quad on um, on Russia, but it also really made the the Indians very, very wary about the United States. And Prime Minister Modi was already profoundly distressed by the way in which President uh, Biden handled the US withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan in August in the the previous year, uh, which was, uh, to say the least, a demonstration that the US had no longer any remaining prestige in Central Asia uh, or in South Asia uh, at that particular time. So the Quad, is now less than cohesive. Yes, there's cooperation at an operational level. There's trust and interoperability emerging among the militaries and intelligence services at an operational level, but there is no strategic commonality of vision. We turn to AUKUS and we see that the politicians in, in the United States and Australia in particular don't use the fact that AUKUS is potentially the most powerful treaty in the world. The AUKUS treaty gives Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States a military reach into the North and South Atlantic, into the Mediterranean, the Indian Ocean, the North and South Pacific, into the polar regions. There has never been a treaty like that in existence in the world today. The NATO treaty is far more circumscribed by comparison and NATO today in any event is not the NATO of 1989. It is not an interoperable military capability anymore. NATO today is just a political alliance, which means less and less. But AUKUS has great potential. It is uh, ensuring a flow of technology, not just nuclear powered attack submarines to Australia, but a flow of technology between the three member states at an unparalleled level. And um, US technology can now flow to Australia through changes in the ITAR, the International Trade in Armaments Regulations. But the Australian government has made sure that there are profound areas of Australian scientific and technological excellence, which can be made available to the United States. I think Australia is being a little too naive and generous on this at this stage, given the reality that President Biden is not a major uh, adherent to the core values of AUKUS. And we see, okay, AUKUS is greatly favored by the operators, by the senior military and intelligence chiefs, Uh, and it makes up for a lot of the failings which have gradually accrued in the Five Eyes Agreement. The Five Eyes Agreement is the UK-USA Accords, which links intelligence exchanges at a very profound level between United Kingdom, United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. That had become moribund largely because it had become obsessed with volume rather than quality. And we saw uh, that, that the Five Eyes Agreement did not mean that any of the Five Eyes heads of government actually agreed with each other so it as a strategic tool that had become fairly useless now we see that canada is talking about gaining entry to the AUKUS agreement and under normal circumstances that would be great but the only reason that canada is talking about joining AUKUS today not for to gain nuclear submarines uh, uh, but because prime minister justin trudeau who was a, provo- a profound devotee of Mao Zedong and currently Xi Jinping, has been so disavowed by Xi Jinping, huge mistake by Xi Jinping, by the way, that that Justin Trudeau has been forced to in turn disavow the People's Republic of China and has been forced to acknowledge that uh, the Communist Party of China had attempted and to a large degree succeeded in influencing the the last set of of Canadian parliamentary elections. So we've got a situation there where uh, AUKUS could be become something meaningless unless we're very, very careful. But if we play our cards right, and if Prime Minister Albanese can be brought to understand the potential of AUKUS, which gives Australia the nearest it has ever had to an equal voice with the UK and the United States, particularly making it central in the Indo-Pacific, then at that point, if if we can be brought to understand that, that would be a huge benefit. But unfortunately, we've also seen that the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Defense Department, even particularly with its uh, Defense Strategic Review, has not actually understood the full dimension of the strategic context. It certainly understands the technology, but it doesn't understand the extent to which Australia must regain some strategic free will uh, and to be, if you like, an equal partner in making decisions. What we saw with the Defence Strategic Review was a commitment by the Australian Defence Department to subordinate itself to the United States for an indefinite period at a time when the United States is showing that it is not going to be the answer to all of Australia's prayers. The answer to Australia's prayers are Australian. Australia itself must be the arbiter of its own future if it is to regard itself as a sovereign country. And there's some degree of question
0: as to whether we, we are very wise advice. Uh, And uh, just on a finishing point, it's worth noting that those elements within the Labour Party who are instinctively opposed to the American Alliance are organizing and they're being led by Bob Carr, the former Premier of New South Wales, who's come out today suggesting that we are becoming a client state or a client state of the United States. Bob Carr, of course, has... uh, very close relationships on uh, on his past activities with the People's Republic and uh, would obviously Certainly. be instinctively opposed to AUKUS, which is uh, very much designed, I would have thought, to contain the PRC.
1: Well, not only Bob Carr, whose relationship with the People's Republic of China or the Communist Party of China should come under great scrutiny, which it hasn't, but so, too, Should the activities of Paul Keating who has been actively lobbying Australian business leaders to form a new uh, Movement in Australia to support Australia PRC relations And to and to support that the continuation of of of, uh, Older trading ties, but also to for Australia to stop questioning the PRC and for Paul Keating who's an intelligent man, I wouldn't say the same of Bob Carr, but for, for these people to say that Australia should subordinate its interests to a government or a, com- or a party which is committed to the destruction of Western democratic values, has threatened nuclear war against Australia, is something akin to treason.
0: Well, that's a very serious charge, and uh, I think uh, there's great merit in strong criticism of those in Australia who have led us down this path, and they've led us this way so much so, and and not only these two gentlemen, but a large part of the Australian establishment has done what has happened in other countries, and particularly the United States. They've made us dependent on the... uh, On the communist regime, they've assumed, or they, I assume they've assumed, this is the best interpretation, in entering into arrangements with the communist regime, like the free trade agreement, they have naively thought that this regime would observe treaties as if it were a democratic Western power. And of course, they They're quite prepared to treat these as scraps of paper and to shred them as they have done the Free Trade Agreement. They've treated us appallingly, and uh, we're now prostrating prostrating ourselves before them uh, as if we are in the wrong in relation to the very reasonable proposition that there should be some examination, some search as to what happened in relation to COVID and why. The regime in Beijing refused or kept it quiet when they knew that vast numbers of people were leaving China after the new year and they were coming away with COVID, and they didn't warn us that this was the case. The, the regime has behaved appallingly in relation to that, and appallingly in relation to our trade relations, and we should not just we shouldn't put up with that, I don't think.
1: Well, I think across the board, you can say that they've never done anything beneficial uh, to Australia because they, they thought kindly of Australia or thought that there should be equity in the bilateral relationship between Australia and the PRC. Quite the contrary, they've consistently sought to gain advantage in a way which was inimical to, to normal trade behavior. The United States, you could argue, has also uh, not treated Australia as an equal. I think there's plenty of blame to go around in, in that. And for that matter, you could argue that historically the United Kingdom government uh, has not has not treated Australia as an equal, but is now prepared to do so. That's the big change. And that's the element of AUKUS, which is so important. And we have to ex- continue to exploit that. And I think even get back to thinking about the real long-term future, which could be in the old Kansas concept, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, United Kingdom. Unfortunately, we've got governments in Australia and New Zealand and Canada, which are less than visionary. No one's looking at the long-term. Nobody's looking at uh, the the underlying values. One of the things you can say about the United Kingdom is that uh, the Brexit debate sparked a return to the concept of what constitutes the values and interests of the United Kingdom. So at least that debate is underway there. But we're not seeing similar debates in Australia, New Zealand, or Canada. But if we were to see those debates resume, and there are plenty of people in the Kansas community prepared to engage in that debate, then we would see uh, a gradual return to the values and nobility of the kinds of government and value and, and uh, treatment, social treatments that we expect our society to perpetuate down the generations.
0: Well, I must thank you so much for your contribution. And I might say that... Uh if If Britain and America and other countries haven't treated us as an equal, we should be happy that the New Zealanders treat us as an equal power. And uh, I'd like to again just to thank you for your contribution and for your marvelous, your marvelous assessment and vision in relation to uh, what happened concerning former president nixon. this is a this is something which I think, needs to be studied very closely because it explains so much in relation to what has happened in the world today. Thank you very much. And uh, I've been speaking with Greg Copley from Washington, who's given us these marvelous insights. And uh, this is uh, Save the Nation on ADH-TV. I'm David Flint. And until next time, thank you.